The sermon today is taken from John 18, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he had, and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. I shall, not, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. This is the word of God. Thank you, Indita. Friends, we're back. Uh, actually, let me, let me pray one more time before we start. Father, again, we beg you. And we come to you knowing finite minds cannot comprehend your word. And the particular message of this text um, is, can be viewed as difficult and hard. And I pray that you soften our hearts and give all of our attention right now to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, we're back uh, in our uh, series of the book of John. We took a three-week break, and now uh, we're starting John 18. Okay, and probably we're going to just go straight through from John 18 all the way to the end, which is John chapter 21, and we're not going to take any more breaks because that's four, four chapters before we end. So before the three-week break, we preached through John chapter four, 14 to 17. John chapter 14 to 17 is what we call the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse is really just one long monologue by Jesus Christ to his disciples before the cross is going to happen. So Jesus was explaining to them why the cross had to happen, how they are to live after Jesus died and resurrected again, right? That's, that's chapters 14 to 17. And now, John chapter 18 is continuing the story of what happened to Jesus after that monologue. Okay, look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what's happening here? After Jesus has spoken these words, the hour of that cross is finally here. The anticipated hour throughout the book of John is finally here. Jesus is about to be captured, and there's a tenseness to the scene here. Even the setting of the scene communicates this tenseness. Look at verse 1 again. When Jesus Christ had spoken uh, uh, these words, he went out. The picture here is Jesus exiting going out of the comforts of the Last Supper in the upper room, he's exiting that scene where the farewell discourse, chapters 14 to 17, took place, and he's entering into another scene, which is what? A garden, which he and his disciples entered, end of verse 1 says. The garden where a decisive battle of the fate of human history will take place. 
what do you think might be significant about a garden? Now remember, the book of John, throughout the book, John, our author, has been consistently trying to connect his book back to Genesis. Just remember how John chapter 1 verse 1 starts. In the beginning was the word. How does Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 start? In the beginning, God. There's this explicit connection that John is trying to make with Genesis. What is John trying to communicate here, you think, by making an emphasis of the garden? Can you think of somewhere else in Genesis where there's a garden? Yes. Eden. Where is it that man first fell into sin? Where did this cosmic struggle for the fate of mankind begin? In a garden. So we find the narrative of redemptive history finding its decisive climactic point where it first began in another garden. God the Son entered into the arena in which man first failed to fulfill that which man could never do. Failed to do what? To live in trusting obedience to the Father. No matter where in life that trust and obedience takes him. This is what we fail to do in the garden, in Eden, yet Jesus Christ succeeded. Let's, let's dive into this scene, and as we do so, I hope you see, Christian, the depths of love that your God has for you. And also the call he has for your life, which is to live in trusting obedience to him no matter what, wherever in life that trust and that obedience takes you. Three things I want to point out. One, a decisive battle. Two, two ways to fight. Three, the reason to persevere. A decisive battle, two ways to fight, the reason to persevere. Let's go to point one, a decisive battle. Now the similarities between the garden scene in Eden and the garden scene we find here today is not only that the location is a garden, but also all the parties that are present here. First, you find who? Satan. He was present at Eden. And here, he's not directly present, but his primary representative was. Who is that? Let's go to verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. If you remember, Judas in John chapter 6 was associated with who? With the devil. He is here now, face to face with Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And how was Judas described here? As the one who betrayed Jesus. This is important, friends. You've got to take note of this. Judas is described as a betrayer, not as an enemy. Why is he specifically described as a betrayer? See, the term enemy, an enemy is somebody who previously probably had no ties or relationships with you, but yet is against you. But a betrayer, a betrayer is somebody who once was your friend, somebody who once had a relationship with you, but then turned against you. Why is Judas described in that way? Because here is not only representing Satan, but he's representing Adam. Mankind, all of us. Adam, who had a deep, loving relationship as God's creature and God as his creator. And by nature, uh, the creator-creature relationship is that the creator is to trust and joyfully worship and rest upon his care and surrender to his word. That's how our creator-creature relationship works, but yet what did Adam do? What do we often choose to do? Self-reliance. Like Adam, we say, I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll decide how to move forward. I'll sit on the throne. This isn't just enmity toward God. This is betrayal. 
we who were created for his glory decide to be our own gods. That's what sin is. Every time we sin, we're not just breaking this moral objective standard rules out there. We've broken the heart of God. That's what sin is. It's much more personal. The one in whom we were made to trust and fully rely upon, we rejected. And some of you know what that feels like, to be betrayed. The approach of an enemy might cause you to puff up and fight. But the betrayal of a loved one, it deflates you, doesn't it? It, it defeats you. There's something more insidious, more personal, more wretched, more vile about it. This is what we do every time we sin. But yet, we do it every day, even after knowing this, because most of us here, this is not new information, if you here believe in a personal good God, most of us know what sin is. It, sin is an act of rebellion against this personal good God, but yet, why do we still do it? One, yes, because our hearts are sinful, but also because the broken world that we live in is set up in such a way that it does make it difficult sometimes to walk in integrity with the Lord. Not to blame the world, it's our sin, but the world also is a broken world. Where do we see that in our passage? Go to verse 3. So Judas, having procured or received a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Who did Judas, who does Satan have at his disposal? One, a band of soldiers from the Roman military. The Roman military is representative of the most powerful military strength of the world at that time. But two, he had officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The chief priests and the Pharisees were the most powerful religious strength of that day. What's the picture here? The kingdom of darkness has at its disposal and wields the most powerful military force and the most powerful religious institutions to overthrow God and his gospel. Now, I know the situations that life puts you and I in is probably not like this. You don't, you're not face-to-face -face with a whole army or a host of religious leaders that's threatening you in your obedience to God. But when your friends, whether social or professional, asks you to join in certain activities that you know is clearly displeasing to the Lord, and when your convictions tell you no, but you're single, you don't really have a good family life and your friends your friends is all you have I mean they're your whole world what do you do if I obey God here it'll lead me to much rejection from the world your boss your employer asks you to do something that is completely against your biblical convictions I know we live in Jakarta and there's gray areas but some things are black and white and you know it and you want to obey God's word. But if you don't do this thing that he's asking you to do, you're not going to move up the corporate ladder. And you, if you obey God here, perhaps that's going to lead you to some kind of career setbacks. But the field that you're in won't let you live that way. It's set up in that way. What do you do? The whole world was against Jesus here. But yet he was able to remain faithful to God's will. To the end, how? How did he do that? Let's get practical. One, you're not going to like this. I'm going to get emails. I know it. One, you must know that if your obedience to God brings you to a place of suffering, you must know 
that place of suffering is not a detour. If obedience to God brings you to a place of suffering, that place of suffering is not a detour. That place of suffering is dead center within God's will for your life. You have to know that. If you don't, you're never going to be able to enter into that suffering with trust and obedience to God. Now, before you press send, okay, let me, let me show you where in the text I got that. Let's go to verse 4. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, whom do you seek? He knew the suffering was going to happen. This is not an unexpected detour. This is exactly where God has placed him. This cross is exactly what Jesus came for. Not only did Jesus know it was going to happen, he's asserting in this whole scene that he's in control of the whole thing. He asked them, who do you seek? Verse 5, they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And immediately, immediately this band of soldiers fell to the ground. Why? Because Jesus here is claiming to be God. If you remember throughout the book of John, the phrase I am, ego eimi, is a significant phrase. Jesus says it a lot. And John quotes it a lot. Why is this phrase significant? Because if you remember and you go back all the way to Exodus chapter 3 and how God reveals himself to Moses, who does God reveal himself to be? I am who I am. Jesus is saying, I am he. Jesus has used this phrase many times in the book of John to proclaim his deity, and the soldiers knew this. And as soon as they heard the weight of this claim, they dropped to the ground, as if a band of soldiers were hopelessly outnumbered by one. And look at what Jesus said. (laughs) After the soldiers fell to the ground, he asked them again, who was it you were looking for? How audacious. Try and get the picture here. Jesus was the one who knew everything that was going to happen. He was the first to initiate. Who are you looking for? He was the one who revealed himself to be, I'm the great I am. And when they fell to the ground, he asked them again, who was it you're looking for? He didn't have bad hearing. The question wasn't born out of a lack of information. The whole dialogue was purposed for Jesus to emphasize, I'm in control here. And the soldiers responded again, I imagine with stuttering voices this time around. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered again in verse 8, I told you, that's me. What's the point here? What's John trying to get at? The total authority and sovereign power and control that Jesus, God, had in the midst of this very, very, very defeating circumstance. Jesus is saying here, the situation I'm in is not ultimately mustered up by the will of Satan, is not ultimately mustered up by the will of man, is not ultimately mustered up by the will of the world. This is my will. And if we're here not convinced that this is God's will for Jesus to suffer like this, let's just glance at verse 11. Let's skip there. What did Jesus say when Peter was trying to prevent the suffering from happening? Jesus was obeying God. His obedience to God brought him to a place of suffering. And Peter wanted to prevent the suffering from happening. He took out the sword. What did Jesus say to Peter? It doesn't get any more explicit than this. Verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Who was in control throughout the situation of seeming defeat? 
Jesus was. Who gave this cup of suffering to Jesus? The Father did. See, if you think that God's will and control over your life only extends as far as the good situations in your life, you know what's going to happen when bad situations come? You're going to panic. You're going to panic. And the fear and the anxiety is going to be so dreadful. And it's going to immediately cause you to primarily think about how to get out of the situation. Even if it means I need to lie or cheat or steal or defame someone else's name or cut corners. It doesn't matter what I do. Just get me out of the situation. God is good and all until obeying him puts me at risk. What did Jesus do here? He beheld the frightening circumstance that his obedience to the Father has led him to. And he said... What gave him the boldness to remain to the Lord no matter the cost, he said, this is my Father's will. This situation is not mustered up by Satan or the world or anyone else but God. My obedience to him has led me here. And this is what he's trying to show his disciples. His disciples who, who is watching this garden battle, right? He's showing them, this is not the will of man. I'm in control here. This is not their hour. This is my hour. That's why he responded with reliant obedience and not self-sufficient power, which is what Peter did. Let's go to our second point. Two ways to fight. Look at verses 8 to 10. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. You've gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now notice here what John is trying to emphasize. Notice Peter was not fighting in self-defense. He wasn't. He was instead rebelling against God's will for Jesus to suffer. That's the emphasis here. He's not being self-defensive. He's, he's, he's rebelling against God's will for Jesus to suffer. Where do we get that from? Look at verse 8. Jesus said, let these men go. Peter was already being let go. There was no one attacking him. He could have just walked away. He could have allowed God's plan to unfold as it should. He could have let Jesus go to the cross, but he didn't. He rebelled against it. He would rather disobey God than to go through the path of suffering. Even when Jesus has made it clear throughout the farewell discourse, this is why I came. This is God's will. Two, why we, I land to that conclusion, look at the amount of detail that John put here when Peter cut off uh, the, the right ear um, of the servant. The, the level of detail, when an author gives you this level of detail, you have to, have to ask the question, why? What's the point of this level of detail? Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. When an author goes through that trouble, you have to ask, why did he do that? Okay, these details. One, it's a high priest's servant. Two, he cut off the right ear. And even three, he made sure to name the person so that no one mistakes him of whose servant he is. Okay. Why is this important? Because back then, um, the Josephus, a historian at the time, does record a case or cases where high priests, when they did something that uh, betrays their position and when they lose their authority to disqualify him, what they did is they cut off his right ear, symbolizing you're taking away his power, his authority. You don't listen to him anymore. Peter here, who was not being attacked, 
who had all the time to think about who to cut and where to cut, decided to specifically cut the right ear of specifically the high priest's servant, who specifically, just to be sure you guys don't mistake it, is Malchus. What's Peter saying? I refuse. I refuse to let this happen. This suffering cannot be within God's will. I'm rebelling. Surely something like this, it's outside of God's will. So you know what? It's free for all. It's everyone for himself. I'll do whatever I need to do as long as I get out of this situation. I'll cut whoever I need to cut. I'll pay off whoever I need to pay off. I'll lie to whoever I need to lie to. I'll please whoever I need to please. I'll cheat whoever I need to cheat. Don't worry, Jesus. I'll get us out of this situation. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. Let me do my thing. Let me get us back on track to God's will. That's all pretty. And, 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 and we'll escape this that is not God's will. That's what Peter is saying. To where Jesus abruptly told Peter in verse 11, Stop. Stop. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, Jesus says, do you not see that this is exactly what God's will is? You can just see Peter with his sword in one hand and a bewildered face saying, what? Peter, put your sword back in. Look around. I know it doesn't look like it, but we are dead center in the Father's will, and I'm still in control. What? But if I don't do this, I'm going to lose this client. Put down your sword. Follow me. But if I don't do this, I'll be single again, and maybe forever. Put down your sword. Trust me. But if I don't do this, people will, won't respect me. Put down your sword. But I'll lose everything. Put down your sword. Follow me. Oh, I know what you're trying to do, Jesus. Okay, if I put down my sword and obey you, then you'll deliver us out of this garden. You'll, you'll deliver us out of this misery. You'll, you'll bring legions of angels to swoop down from heaven and somehow save us out of this suffering right here, right now. Right? Nope. They'll bind me. They'll crucify me. For this is the Father's will. For this is the hour in which I came for but what's the point of that, <laughs> Peter might say? What's the point of obeying God if it leads me to the cross? What's the point of obeying God if at the end I suffer for it? We might be echoing Peter's question right now. Look, that's the problem. We think this is the end of it. Peter thought the cross was the final end. He didn't read far enough into the story. Let's do that right now. Let's turn our Bibles or scroll your phones all the way to the very last chapter of the Bible. Let's read far enough into the story. Revelations 22. What do you see is interesting. We find another familiar setting. Then the angel showed me 
the river of the water of life. John wrote Revelations 2, by the way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Sound familiar, that setting? The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will be the anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. What's the setting you find here at the last chapter of the Bible? Another garden. But it's greater somehow. It's described also as a great city. And who's in it? Who's ruling victoriously on a throne, worshipped eternally by his people? The Lamb of God. Now, a lamb is a sacrificial animal in the Old Testament that was often bound and brought to the slaughter to offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people so that God's people who sinned can be freed from their sin and forgiven because somebody else paid for it. Let's get back to our text, verse 12. What's the imagery you see here? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and what? Bound him as if a lamb about to be slaughtered. What is Jesus' purpose here? Through the cross, he is to become the sacrificial lamb that would pay for the sins of his people. Jesus knew the end game. Peter simply didn't read far enough. He didn't know. He didn't know the greater glory, the greater redemption, the greater joy, the greater garden that is to be brought out of this momentary suffering. And this joy, this greater glory, this greater redemption would not have happened if this momentary suffering of the cross didn't happen. Glory comes through the suffering. This is God's will. This is the lamb you see in Revelation 22. Is Jesus, that's right now, might look like he's being bound defeatedly. But this binding, this suffering, is the very thing that's going to bring about a greater glory. God wins his victory for himself, for you and I, his people, for Peter, not apart from seeming defeats, but through seeming defeats. You see? Do you think if Peter knew the end game, he would have still took his sword out? Because Peter didn't know the end game, he lived with this motto. Okay. Because Peter didn't know the end game, he lived with this motto. This is it. It's up to me. But because Jesus knew the end game, he was able to live with this motto. This is not it. Watch my father work. If you don't have that end game in mind, you will always live with that motto. This is it. It's up to me. Behold the future glory that will come through suffering, and you will speak as Jesus did. This is not it. Watch my Father work. Is your obedience to God taking you to a place of seeming defeat? Is your obedience to God causing some sort of pragmatic disadvantage to your life? If so, don't be surprised. This is the path of glory God has been operating with throughout history. This is the path of glory he threw himself into. Let me read 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is God's will. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
our passage is telling us if your obedience is causing some sort of pragmatic disadvantage to your life, if your obedience to God is causing you to move through fiery trials, don't be surprised. You're not outside of God's will. You're dead center in it. Keep obeying. Do not turn to the motto, this is it, this is up to me. If you do, if you do, you'll be frantically thrown into unrest. You'll find yourself in an exhausting state of anxiety. Well, why? Because this is it. There's nothing more to the story. This is the end. Everything, everything is up to you and how you get yourself out of the situation. And like Peter, you'll find yourself madly swinging your sword left and right, willing to do just about anything to find deliverance from that defeat that really is just momentary in nature. And your disobedience might pragmatically solve that momentary one situation, and sure, you might find momentary rest, but that brief sense of rest will very quickly be interrupted as your conscience whispers upon your heart, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that. And the next suffering comes. Do not live with the motto, this is it. It's up to me. But let's say, let's say you have a cheat sheet. Let's say the Bible is true. God does win battles through seeming defeats. God does use seeming defeats as the very thing that produces a greater glory for him and for his people. Let's say Peter knew that. The cross was the way that he himself is to be saved. He would not have walked this life with anxious self-reliance. He would have not been wailing his sword around hurting others, but instead respond as Jesus did with meek submission unto the Father. Let your will be done. I will obey. Now, this won't be easy. Peter might be clenching his fists as he saw the soldiers take Jesus away. He might be grinding his teeth as he trusts the Father and the soldiers to bind Jesus. His brain might have to force his arm muscles to not take the sword out of the sheath. But he will remain obedient. You want to remain obedient to God in this life, even when that obedience might take you to places of seeming defeats. One, you've got to know this is his will. You're not outside of it. You're dead center in it. Two, he's in full control. This is his hour, not theirs. Three, if you turn the pages far enough, there's a greater glory that will come out of this that would not be um, uh, as glorious as if it could be if this didn't happen. Okay. Let's go on to the last point. I want to share how those three things, you got to know you're in his will, you got to know he's in full control, and you got to know there's a greater glory at the end of the day. That's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough for you to know those three things and walk obediently to God through suffering. It's not. Jesus also had another motivation. You need more than just your mind to be assured of these truths. You need your heart to be moved by a person. Last point, the reason to persevere. Now, it's tempting to think like this. A lot of Christians fall into this. I sometimes do too. The reason why Jesus was able to persevere is because of delayed gratification. You see? The, reason, the primary motivation that Jesus can persevere through this suffering, momentary trial, is because he knows that if he suffers now, he'll get rewarded for it later. Okay, sure, delayed gratification is an aspect of Jesus' perseverance, but delayed gratification is not the mark, is not the main motivation of what made Jesus persevere. And it won't be yours either. It's not enough. What was Jesus' main motivation? Love. 
love. In that garden, he felt a love so great. That's what motivated him. That's what made him put his hands out to be bounded. A love for who? One, for God the Father. Look at verse 11. He loved God the Father. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He did this because he loves God the Father. But two, a love for his disciples. For you and I, if you've received Christ. Look at verse 8. If the gospel is not summarized here, look at verse 8. If you seek me, let these men go. Why did Jesus have to go through all this? Why couldn't he just let Peter drive them away? Because he knew in order to save his disciples, in order to save Peter and everyone else back there, in order to save you and I today, who have received Christ and Lord and Savior, he had to pay for their sins. Remember, you and I betrayed God. You and I betray God every day when we sin. We have crushed the heart of God. We deserve justice, wrath. But God in his love for us came down and offered himself as a sacrificial lamb to be crushed in our place. He came down, bound himself to this hour, said, take me, let them go. The Son of God willingly allowed himself to be bound by sinners like a sacrificial animal, animal so that in his death the sins of his people may be washed clean. This is why he persevered. This is why he bound himself, not just for delayed gratification, but because at that very moment, in that very garden, right then and there, he felt a love so great for the Father, and he felt a love so great for his disciples, he was willing to die for it. What's going to make you persevere? What's going to keep you obedient to God when that act of obedience is the very thing that's going to bring you down this fiery trial that can cause pragmatic disadvantages to your life? What's going to keep you going when the whole world seems to be against you? What's going to give you the power for obedience? Not delayed gratification. Not that, just that. You must have a love for Jesus right here, right now, that is so great that it makes you say, take the world, give me Jesus. Take it. Where are you going to get that kind of love? Where are you going to get that kind of love that's going to cause you to be willing to fight and die for your God is by first realizing that your God fought and died for you. What did Peter need? He didn't need a king that would scare the soldiers away with a sword. He needed a king that would pay for his sins with his wounds. That's what your king did for you. Will you receive it? This is what the Bible is all about. What's the garden narrative all about? A story of God's delayed gratification? That's involved in it, but primarily, no. It's a story of God's love for his glory and for you. Take me, let them go, crucify me, set them free, lay their sins upon my head, all of it, so that not a hint of sin may be found upon theirs. Let me drink the cup of God's wrath and justice meant for them. Just set them free. If Adam's sin in the first garden brought us death through life, Jesus' disobedience in the second garden gave us life through his death. He did what we could never do. Romans 5, 15 to 19. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, 
much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is what it means to be Christian. To realize how great a love that God has for you, which cleanses all of your sins, and to respond to this love with glad acceptance, which will propel you to trust and obey Him, no matter where that trust and that obedience takes you. Choose Him. Choose Him, not this world. That's the Christian's plea. Is it yours? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you have given your son to die for our sins. We thank you that in your love, you have not left us to your justice. You have not left us, left us to your wrath. But instead, you've given your one and only son to be a sacrificial lamb bound for our sins. Let this love now propel us to love you back with such intensity of fighting for a God who fought and died for us so that now at the end of the day, if we turn the pages long enough, we'll see how this all will result in a greater glory. Let us live for that and not for this world. Let us live for your love and not for the love of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.